Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Thanks for joining me again on New Books in Military History. With me today is James Whitman, a professor of law at Yale University, who has published The Verdict of Battle, The Law of Victory and the Making of Modern War with Harvard University Press in 2012. Jim, thanks for joining uh, me. Thank again. you very much for having me. So tell us a little bit about your, your background and how you came to write this book about military history. You've written several other things on comparative law and so forth, but what attracted you to this? Yeah, I'm, I'm mostly a law professor. In fact, I'm exclusively a law professor, although I do have a PhD in history. Um, but what I did for my PhD had nothing to do with military history, I'm afraid. Um, there, the, what attracted me to the book really was a variety of topics in legal history, odd though it may sound. I'm sure most military historians don't imagine that their subject would be at all appealing to a, a law professor or a legal historian. But in fact, there's a lot uh, that should interest lawyers. And I think lawyers have things to say that should interest the military historians, too. At least, I hope if they read the book, they'll be convinced. And that the main topic of the book is indeed pitched battles. Um, that's a topic that only military historians write about, as far as I know, or at least that's, that's the case today. Um, but in fact, it's a topic that really does require some legal analysis. A pitched battle is an astounding institution from, from the lawyer's point of view. You know, when, when the classic pitched battle works the way it's supposed to work, which one ought to say immediately is by no means always the case, uh, when a pitch battle, a classic pitch battle works the way it's intended to work, uh, it resolves international conflict in an astoundingly economical and contained way. So, you know, the classic pitch battle is supposed to start at dawn and end by dusk. In fact, most of the time they didn't last quite that long. Uh, and when the thing is over, if all goes well, both sides accept the verdict of the battle and go home and there's peace. Now, there's a lot to be added to the story before we can say, that that's uh, before we've given a full description of what went on. But just to say that much is to say something that's very striking from the legal point of view. This is, as what lawyers call a pitch battle, is what lawyers call a dispute resolution mechanism and an astoundingly successful one. So that's what drew me into the topic. Uh, as I say, it's, it's astoundingly, astoundingly successful and astoundingly contained, especially by contrast with the sorts of general wars of devastation one otherwise is faced with. And the, the connection that you make, obviously, from a, from a lawyer's perspective, is that there is a kind of, and it's implicit or, or explicit in the title, that, that battle is a kind of legal proceeding, right? That it's, it's this, as you said, a, con, a, a method of conflict resolution that bears a lot of similarities with, with actual legal proceedings, especially if you immerse yourself in, the, in notions of law during the period in which the you battle You bet. Is That's place. exactly what lawyers said about it, and non-lawyers, for many, many centuries. I mean, the most famous version of that characterization of battles to the Middle Ages, battles were regarded as judgments of God. That's partly what drew me into the topic. I've written about other judgments of God. Um, but the same is true of the high era of contained warfare and, shall we say, recent military history, meaning the last several centuries, namely the 18th century. Uh, lawyers in the 18th century had a had very interesting and complex forms of analysis of battles as a form of trial, uh, which I spent a lot of time on on the book. As, uh, as lawyers in the 18th century generally put it, a, a battle was what was what we call, legal historians call, like combat wager. Uh, that is a bet on who would win with the understanding of the loser had committed himself to accept the verdict of the battle. 
Uh, it was a combat wager subject in the standard analysis to a tacit contract of chance. It was part of contract law. Uh, and lawyers spent a lot of time analyzing it as a, as a legal proceeding, as a form of trial. So um, it's one of the things that appealed to me as an, as an historian, obviously with your, your uh, academic background in history too, it was easy for you to, to make this, this kind of a point. But about the, we should maybe make clear to listeners that you are talking about this uh, relatively brief period from, say, the middle of the end of the Thirty Years' War, maybe the, the middle, mid-17th, maybe early 18th century, until the middle of the 19th century, that you're describing a, a kind of consensus that, that both develops out of, a, out of an historical context and then breaks down in a, for specific reasons. in the Yeah, I'm not sure we already see it with the end of the Thirty Years' War. It really begins with the War of the Spanish Succession, for, for reasons that are not entirely clear to me. But it's entirely true. Uh, well, let me say a little bit more about it. I mean, what's striking about 18th century warfare, warfare really up until the American Civil War uh, and the Franco-Prussian War, um, was that combatants had the capacity for the most part, by contrast with other periods, to limit conflict, conflict to the battlefield. Um, this is even true, of course, of the Napoleonic Wars, and that's something that deserves to be emphasized because military historians and non-military historians are right about the topic, so frequently treat the, the great watershed in the making of modern wars coming with the Napoleonic Wars. I think if we're asking the perhaps narrow, but perhaps not so narrow question that I'm asking in the book, to what extent were battles regarded as single-day, ideally single-day battles, regarded as the decisive events in war, uh, it's clear that that form of warfare survived right down to the 1860s and 1870s. Uh, sorry, please. You make, well, sorry. Well, the, the, the evidence for that is battles like Magenta and Solferino sure. during the, the wars of Italian unification. That, that battle of is another spectacular sense. example. Um, Right. Uh, where we really see it breaking down is in the American Civil War once again, where against all expectation, uh, pitch battle was not sufficient to resolve the conflict. Uh, and again, in many ways, even more dramatically in the Franco-Prussian War, because the Battle of Sedan was regarded by uh, all observers as, uh, they all said at the time, the single most decisive battle ever witnessed in human history and so on and so forth. Despite that, like the Southerners in the American Civil War, the general French populace was not willing to accept the verdict of the battle. And it's really then... In, 1863, 1865, 1870, in these new republics. That's my main claim, that we see the old form of battle warfare that had dominated in the 18th century, and even in the Napoleonic period, collapsing. You make uh, several other interesting points um, about um, both military history and, and battles specifically. I think, um, where can, which one can we pick up? In other words, the people have misunderstood People have, people have seen the, the style of 18th century warfare and the, the kind of the orderliness of it and the, 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 the relative restraint that was, that was sometimes exercised uh, in those battles and tried to explain it using, um, using things like chivalry or the notion of a duel or the dominance of aristocracy. And you really take, take these ideas and, and, and uh, complicate yeah. Well, I, I aim to undermine them anyway. I mean, it may be true as a matter of social history that, that there was a, a kind of what's often called an aristocratic culture that dominated in the 18th century. But none of the lawyers who talked about war thought that they were talking about an aristocratic phenomenon at all. And I think if we're trying to explain the restrained character that you just mentioned, it's not helpful in any sense to, to point to aristocratic culture. Uh, as for chivalry, well, I can say more about that in a moment. I mean, the, the, the typical claim we see not only among military historians but also – among specialists in international law and the law of war, 
uh, is that the 18th century was characterized by the dual war, la guerre duelle in, in, in French. Uh, that is, war that followed the forms of aristocratic dueling. Uh, but if we read the lawyers themselves in the 18th century, what they had to say about things, they made a very sharp distinction between dueling and war. And far from regarding war as aristocratic, they thought that the great explanation for the success of, in civilizing warfare that they saw in their own day, that the great explanation was uh, the success that had to do with the success of monarchs in suppressing aristocratic warfare. They had retained a very vivid memory of the private wars of the aristocrats, which continued down, you know, through the Fronde, so into the 1660s. Uh, uh, and their understanding of their world was that what had finally civilized warfare was, the, as I say, the success in monarchs in eliminating that kind of aristocratic claim to what was regarded as the sovereign right to make war uh, in order to prove one's legal, uh, legal rights. So I think this is absolutely critical for understanding what went on if we're trying to explain, what's, if we're trying to resolve what's really the great mystery of the period. As I say, how we managed to or uh, how the 18th century, particularly the 18th century continent, managed to limit warfare in the way it did. It's quite wrong to point to aristocratic culture. That's not what they thought was going on. That's not what was going on. In fact, what was going on was uh, a remarkable monarchical monopolization of violence, if you'll excuse the clumsy Weberian phrase. That is, what happened, what was most important, was that for the first time in many, many centuries, monarchs successfully claimed the exclusive right to use battle as a legal procedure as a way of resolving their disputes, where aristocrats, by contrast, were forced to go to court. No. Right, and of course, and that fits in quite nicely with the kind of political story of the development of absolutism, or, or a, you don't use this term, but that, that kind of deal that gets made at some point in the 18th century in many places between these the monarchs with ab, absolutist um, aspirations and their no, noble classes, a kind of arrangement where certain kinds of social and political authority are secured for the aristocrats in exchange for usually military, some form of military service, service to this. And, and if I, I didn't and, say it, I hope I quoted so the people who do. You know, that's exactly right, as a, from my point of view, as a description of what, what went on in the 18th century. I would add some further social theory, uh, at, at the risk of alienating folks who don't like social theory. Uh, what we also see clearly in, the, in, in 18th century military history, from my point of view at least, uh, is is a version of the Norbert Elias thesis about the uh, um, monarchical domination over the aristocracy uh, in military history. That is the sort of court culture that, that, that Elias described developing, and particularly at Versailles in the 17th century, is exactly the sort of court culture, monarchically dominated court culture, that, and from my point of view, that we see in uh, uh, in war as well. Uh, oh, sorry, please. Well, I was going to say one of the one of the other interesting uh, points that you make, and kind of the, one of the central arguments, has to do with uh, Frederick the Great and a kind of uh, you probably wouldn't use the term rehabilitation, but a, a new understanding of um, reconsideration of Frederick's role, and especially the invasion of Silesia, contrasting the way we think about it in our own context as a kind of criminal act. Um, you bet. We think of it as a criminal act. In fact, from the point of view of lawyers, the original criminal act. This was the great original war of aggression. And you'll see it described that way in all of the texts down to this day. But in fact, what Frederick did was entirely lawful. I spent some time trying to prove that point in the book. I hope I succeed. Uh, he followed the rules, and there were rules. That's one of the other claims I make about the 18th century. He very much followed the rules to the letter uh, and did nothing that anybody at the time regarded as unlawful. 
the idea that Frederick had acted unlawfully, I believe, I can't be quite sure, the claim that Frederick had acted unlawfully uh, was pioneered by Jomini. Uh, Jomini and Clausewitz, both the men of their generation in the, in the 19th century, were very eager to reject the legal norms that had dominated warfare in the 18th century. And, of course, they regarded Frederick as a great hero. So they wanted to insist, at least Jomini did, they wanted to insist that Frederick had never submitted to the law at all and that he was a model for their time in that respect as well. Why do you think that is? Why, I mean, Clausewitz, you do have some interesting things to say about Clausewitz, too. Why, why do you think that they... They, they uh, You know, there are people who are better experts, put it mildly, on Clausewitz or on Jomini uh, than I am. You know, I, I think they were idealizers of force. And they imagined that there was some, in a way that we've come to imagine, too, that there's some sharp distinction between the use of force and the resort to law. That was not the understanding in the 18th century, though. It was well understood in the 18th century that those licensed to use force could use it lawfully. Uh, but I, I'm not sure that's a satisfactory answer to your question. Clausewitz is, a, is famously mysterious. Um, but, I, but I think in Clausewitz, one sees very clearly this, as I say, idealization of force, this uh, uh, fanaticism sometimes for force in Clausewitz. The striking thing about Clausewitz, from my point of view, is that his, his insistence on the importance of fighting battles and his understanding of how battles succeed, what counts as the verdict of battle, often showed him to be in real agreement with the legal doctrines of the 18th century. He just tried to avoid the legal arguments that justified those same conclusions in the 18th century. Uh, I'll go into details. If, uh, require going into detail to explain that uh, uh, more fully. But well, it's in, I, I'm just, It struck me because, in some ways, Clausewitz, certainly within the American military, is seen as something of a hero, right? Because he understands this subordination of, of military means to political aims and so forth, and this is supposed to be the, you know, the great lesson that we, that we take about Clausewitz, but the notion that he has this, this other side, the, you know, the notion of the battle of annihilation and the tendency toward absolute war and so forth. Right, well, I mean, you know, so the, the battle, his, so in, in insisting that, that, that war serves the ends of politics by other means, Clausewitz is really just repeating the standard wisdom of the 18th century. There's nothing new in that claim. The idea that one should fight battles of annihilation is what's new. Right. And the, the fighting of battles in the 18th century was governed by what I call the retreat rule. Uh, that is, the retreat rule which answered one of the fundamentally difficult questions in the 18th century law of war. This, this in the lost 18th century law of war, uh, which was law of war about the nature of victory. Uh, that law of war about the nature of victory really had to resolve two different questions. First, how do you know who won? Because that can be an awfully difficult problem. And second, what does the winner get uh, as a reward for having won? Now, in the answer to the first question, how do you know who won, the standard answer they gave was that the loser is the one who retreated. And that in particular, there was absolutely no need for the victor to pursue the, the retreating side. So... Uh, this is the, the retreat rule is the rule that Clausewitz is, and Germany for that matter. Uh, both of them are very sharply and insistently rejected, insisting on pursuit. Uh, and that's where the Battle of Annihilation mm -hmm. represents, or his doctrine of the Battle of Annihilation represents a real rejection of 18th century legal norms. And this is where you see the, the uh, War of Spanish Succession as, as really kind of opening this, this phase that you're talking about, the Louis XIV's uh, Battle of Malplaquet. Yeah, um, I mean, you know, so, the, the retreat will has a very, very long history. Uh, the, and I should say a little more about it. There, 
I should say more about rules. I, without, I risk trying the patience of military historians when I talk about rules. It's all legal philosophy. But, of course, one of the things I want to insist on in the book is that you can't fully understand the military history unless you do some legal philosophy. There, there were rules in 18th century warfare. Nobody felt obliged to follow them all the time. Now, that sounds very confusing from the point of view of non-lawyers, but what I want to observe, what I think all lawyers would agree on, is that the fact that the rule is not followed all the time does not mean it's not a rule of law. There are many rules of law that we don't follow all the time. <laughs> many people violate the rule of law against murdering other people, for example. That doesn't mean there isn't a rule against it. It means that to some extent it's not a successful rule. Now, the same was true in warfare in the 18th century. There were many legal rules that, for the most part, were followed, but it was well understood that people might not follow them all the time. And in particular, the retreat rule, there was there was a competitor rule to the retreat rule, which I call the casualties rule. Uh, under the casualties rule, the winner would be the side with fewer casualties. Now, in fact, those rules were in deep tension with each other, and we can give examples going very far back into antiquity, and they were in deep tension with each other because uh, one of the ways a commander can force the other side to retreat is by taking more casualties. So that it's frequently the case that we see battles where, under the casualties rule, uh, the victor would be one side, under the retreat rule, the victor would be the other side. And, and we see that very dramatically at the Battle of Malplaquet. Uh, listeners, I won't say readers, may be familiar with the Battle of Malplaquet, uh, at which the French often said, saved their bacon, saved the, the France by imposing uh, spectacularly more casualties on the Allies than they suffered themselves. However, the fact of the matter is that the French retreated, and for that reason, Malplaquet was treated as a defeat by the diplomacy of the time, by all observers at the time, something very striking and difficult for us to understand in the modern world, and certainly for us to understand from the Clausewitzian point of view, because from the Clausewitzian point of view, it seems obvious that the side that inflicts crippling casualties on the other side ought to be regarded as the winner. That was not the way the 18th century viewed things. And you, and you indicate that Louis XIV seemed to understand that himself in terms of the, the kinds of um, um, ceremonies that he observed after the battle. In other words, he did not conduct the kind of triumph uh, the way uh, that he He wasn't did. allowed to do it. He, he couldn't have his te deum, which was a big deal in the 18th century to have a te deum. And in fact, when you read the accounts of the law of war of the time, they often mention the te deum as fundamental to the law of war. That is, it's not just winning, it's celebrating afterwards uh, that makes the war what the war ought to be, or the battle what the battle ought to be from the point of view of 18th century observers. Like exactly right. As you say, because Louis XIV, because the French had retreated, Louis XIV could not celebrate his Te Deum, although he tried to come up with a kind of jury-rigged substitute that convinced nobody at the time. Well, hanging the flags of the flags on it, guys. Yeah, he did hang so. some flags. But you couldn't sing the Te Deum. They used to, you know, commission a special piece of music and do a special ceremony. And thanks to God, uh, that couldn't be done. Well, I think it's I, I, far from being um, bored or disturbed by the legal, the legal analysis. I thought it was very helpful and really in your contribution, both with an historical background but being a, a professional lawyer, to help us understand uh, some of these notions and to really put ourselves in the mindset of of. of of the 18th century and their conceptions of law and, and humanitarianism and so forth and not, and not, um, not suffering from presentism. I remember my wife is an attorney and I remember being struck when she, she quoted, I, I probably learned hand who's quoted all the time, right? But you'll correct me if I'm uh -huh. wrong about the distinction between a court of law and a court of justice, right? <laughs> Where we expect justice, right? You know, this, this is what should have happened. Uh, in fact, the law sometimes, 
Um, that's, that's, that's why it's so much easier for lawyers to love it than for other people to love it. So, uh, yeah, but there's a lot of truth in that, and you can see it in the military context as well. That is, you know, from a certain point of view, the idea that just retreating, just having retreated should make you the loser, even if you killed more of the other side, seems not to comport with some idea of what the ultimate justice of the cause ought to involve. That is, if you really succeed in killing more of them than they killed of you, shouldn't you count as the winner? But it wasn't their view. It wasn't their view, and of course, the fact that that wasn't their view did something very substantial to contribute to the relatively restrained, always emphasizing the word relatively, relatively restrained character of war in the, in the 18th century. Right, and it, as you made the point that not everyone follows the rules, there are pursuits sometimes, and obviously the the European context is important here too, too because things are happening. Right, I, I mean, I, I decided only to talk about the, the classic continental wars because it was too difficult to talk about the other, to bring in the other material. I wanted to write a, a book that could, you know, be contained within two, two, one set of covers or whatever you say about books. I mean, it just would have been an enormous book if I tried to do that. There are connections to what went on in the non-European world, what I would call overseas wars rather than imperial wars, I guess, because more, many of them are commercial and not imperial exactly, in the sense that they would be later. I, there certainly are connections. Um, but, of course, there are many, many differences, and it's very difficult to work through the problems in, in the space of a single book. Um, I... I I could say a little more about what the connections are. I mean, the, one of the things that characterizes, that's fundamentally important in characterizing 18th century warfare, well, let me say a couple of things about it. As I say, the modern law of war is very different from the 18th century law of war. Now, if you talk to ordinary people who have an interest in the law of war or taxi cab drivers, always an interesting source of information, <laughs> or others, you'll often hear that there was no law of war before the Hague Conventions or something like that, or the Libra Code, and that war was purely barbaric, uh, that, you know, there, was, there were no restraints whatsoever until modern lawyers began crafting modern limits on war. And, of course, the people who write about the law of war themselves tend to believe this. So their histories of the law of war really begin with the Libra Code in 1863, and they continue on, as I say, through Hague Conventions and so on and so forth after that. Now, there's an obvious paradox in that idea of the history of law of war, which is one we've already talked about, namely everybody who does well, or at least many, I, I'm speaking to military historians, perhaps they won't all agree, but at least many military historians and certainly all people who are interested in international law of war agree that the high point in relatively recent history of civilized warfare came in the 18th century, that is, before the invention of the modern law of war. So you would think that there's something to explain about how they could have had relatively civilized warfare when they didn't have, supposedly, a law of war. Uh, and in fact, the, the resolution of the paradox has to do with a really straightforward point that I spent a lot of time on the book, straightforward but ignored point. It's not that they didn't have law of war. It's that they focused on something very different in their law of war. So the modern law of war is made up fundamentally, uh, or includes two broad categories, the use ad bellum, I'm sure military historians have encountered this, uh, and the use in bello. The use ad bellum is the law of the right to go to war, uh, mostly subsumed under just war theory. The use in bello is, is the, or what's now often called international humanitarian law, uh, is the body of rules of how one conducts oneself while at war, how one treats combatants, non-combatants, and so on and so forth. Uh, modern lawyers also these days like to talk about something called a use post bellum, that is a law of the humane treatment of the defeated side after 
after defeat, after victory, whatever you want to call it, the, all of this law is fundamentally humanitarian in orientation. The underlying idea of the use of bellum is that one should only go to war in cases of burning necessity, in particular in cases of humanitarian crisis, uh, and most especially in cases uh, of self-defense. Uh, the international humanitarian law, use and bellow, as the same suggests, is humanitarian orientation, same thing with the use post bellum. Now, there's some of this humanitarian law in the 18th century. There's some, but much, much less, and it doesn't play the kind of prominent role in the law of war that it plays now. Instead, the law is very, very heavily involved, what I call, you've called it sometimes, I'm, I'm trying to use it as a technical term though, more generally, uh, it involved the use victoriae, the law of victory. I mentioned before, that is the underlying assumption of the law of war in the 18th century and in earlier centuries was that war was not a desperate last resort to be used only in cases of urgent necessity. They thought of war as a perfectly acceptable legal procedure. And they thought of the problems of war as problems that arose out of its nature as a perfectly acceptable legal procedure. That is, if war is a legal procedure, you need to understand the procedural rules if the aim of war is victory, you have to be able to say, as I said earlier on, you have to be able to determine who counts as the winner and what the winner gets. And their law of war is overwhelmingly about that stuff. Now, the remarkable thing about 18th century warfare is that focusing on these questions, procedurally, how you can regulate the warfare, how you can determine who the winner is, what it is the winner gets, turns out to have been a fairly successful way of teaching the Part of this understanding, one way of, of highlighting how different their understanding of the law of war is from our understanding of the law of war, is to emphasize the relationship of their law of war to other areas of law, by contrast with ours. The law of war for us is most closely related to criminal law. We think of going to war as comparable in one way or another, either to prosecuting evildoers or to using self-defense as one is licensed to use self-defense in criminal law. They thought of the law of war as most closely related to property law. War, as they said, was a legitimate means of the acquisition of property. Now, that's a long disposition, but I'm giving it to you because it helps us understand how continental wars were connected to overseas wars. Continental wars were understood as wars for the acquisition of property, and overseas wars were also wars for the acquisition of property. And for that reason, the law of war was actually quite closely related on either side of the Great Blue Sea, or whatever you want to call it, uh, very closely related, but working out the, 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 de the details of the connection was more than I really wanted to do in this, in this project. Well, that's helpful. I'm glad I could give you the opportunity to do that, uh, to do that now, because, of course, you, know, uh, you do make explicit that, that connection in, the, in the, the front of the book, that this is not about naval history and it's not about overseas, but... She, um, I, I could tell that there was... Oh, thanks a lot. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate the opportunity. As I say, one always wants to explain oneself even after the damn thing goes to print. <laughs> um, yeah, so they, they were wars for property on the continent and abroad, for really for two kinds of property, for territory. It's the sovereigns who, who get territory out of the war. And on the part of, of, the, of the soldiery, for booty. And there's an awful lot of law about booty was perfectly legitimate from the point of view of the law and of society more broadly, um, that, that soldiers should engage in plunder. They had legal rights to plunder. There were well-worked-out rules about when they acquired legal title for their booty. 
there are, I, I didn't want to see them very much, but of course there's litigation about their booty uh, as well. This again was something that didn't change really fundamentally until 1870. There's plenty of booty taking. Mean, there's plenty of booty taking down to this day, of course, and more. But the legal right to booty persisted until 1870. In the 1870s, it's finally eliminated, uh, so that everybody involved was trying to claim territory. Uh, and that's true overseas too, of course, not only with regard to booty, but with regard to the law of conquest that applied in the New World or in Asia, just as it applied in colonial Europe. So. The subtitle of the book is of the making of modern war. So, how do you see this transition? We talked a little bit about um, you know, democracy and republics working differently than yeah. than monarchies, um, for better and for worse. Right, uh, but also this notion of—I mean, you just mentioned about sovereigns—that makes you think about legitimacy. That there's a kind of um, questions about legitimacy that are involved now that were not. Uh, so much on the table. So, so Jay, you ask me questions that always that tempt me to start long disquisitions again. Stop me if I go on for too long about all of this. But uh, th- this is a question that brings us back to the issue of the place of aristocratic culture in the 18th century, which we, we've left off before. Now, <clears throat> again, just to, to run briefly through the chronology as I understand it, I'm you know, eager to have disagreement from others who think there's disagreement, really beginning with the War of the Spanish Succession and continuing down until 1870 we see a primacy of battle warfare of a very striking kind. Now, that's not to say that there weren't forms of guerrilla, guerrilla warfare emerging in the American Revolution, of course, in the Peninsular War. All of these things were going on, but the general understanding was that battle warfare remained the norm, and it surprised everybody when this finally collapsed in 1870 or 1863, whenever you want to date the, the collapse. The question is why things collapse. Now, the, the standard view that you'll see, again, among lawyers and and to some extent among military historians, blames this transformation or credits the transformation, however you want to describe it, uh, to a decline in aristocratic culture or to technological change, as the case may be. Now, I'll just say a little bit about the technological change, and here I, I tremble as I, as I encroach on the territory of military historians, but I have to say I find technological explanations in which I would include, for example, the explanation that it was the the growing size of armies that made it impossible to fight decisive battles, uh, unpersuasive for the very straightforward reason that there were decisive battles, including ones involving enormous manpower, uh, right down to the Battle of Königgrätz. So, you know, the one that I I start with in the the book is another example. There there are plenty of others. Or Sedan, it's not that that it had become technologically impossible to fight battles. They were fought. That demonstrates that it wasn't technologically impossible, say I, the non-military historian. It's that the general populace wouldn't accept the verdict any longer. That's what we see in the American Civil War. That's what we see in the Franco-Prussian War, and that's what we don't see, for example, in the Seven Weeks' War between Prussia and Austria, or in the Second uh, War of Italian Independence. So the real question has to be how the background culture, and I'm going to insist is the political culture changed, such that people would no longer accept the verdict of battle. Now, the idea that there was a decline in aristocratic culture is unpersuasive. I gave part of the reason already. It's hard, it's impossible to make the claim, I think anyway, that, that the restraint of 18th century warfare had to do with the generalization of a dueling model. That's just not right. I spend more time on the technical law in the book uh, than I've done so, so far. Um, but it's not just that. It's, it's, that the, it's not just that the dueling model didn't exist in the 18th century. It did exist, but it emerges in the 19th century. 
when we read 19th century law of war, we see a kind of a romantic era idealization of the dueling aristocracy and of chivalry for the first time. And we see the introduction of chivalric norms, largely for the first time, and dominating for the first time. We see the introduction of chivalric norms into declarations of war in a way that had not been the case in the 18th century. The high point of the chivalric model really comes just at the moment that battle warfare has collapsed. If it wasn't a collapse of chivalry of aristocratic norms that explains the transformation, what does? Well, my claim in the book, which I'm happy to defend at great length, is that it begins where I began before. Uh, 18th century warfare was what 18th century lawyers said it was. It was monarchical warfare. It was a form of trial by combat between sovereigns. Everybody understood this at the time. Only sovereigns, for the first time as a practical matter, were permitted to use the legal procedure of war to resolve their disputes. And the fact, coming back to your question about legitimacy, the fact, your observation, the fact that monarchs and monarchs alone could resolve their legal disputes through war reinforced their legitimacy very fundamentally. The fact that they could go to war made them the monarchs that they, that they were. Now, I think if we don't recognize that truth about the 18th century, we can't understand what happened in the 19th. As long as monarchs continued to fight wars, to claim the right to use the legal procedure of war, to vindicate their, their claims, uh, as long as monarchs continued to fight the wars, the wars continued to be fought in the form of battle warfare. And again, this is true of Solferino, famous at the time as, as the battle at which four monarchs were present, three, sorry, three monarchs were present, uh, or again of Königsgrätz, a battle between a king and an emperor, uh, it was how the Prussians understood the victory at Sedan. It had been a victory of their king over a French emperor. Any time that monarchs fought wars, uh, they managed to fight them within the, the battle form. And it was inevitable that they would do so because fighting battle warfare continued to reinforce a tradition of monarchical legitimacy, a monarchical, monarchical legitimacy over against the old claims of, of aristocratic rights to fight wars in order to justify aristocratic in order to pursue aristocratic legal claims. Now, this I just want to observe, I think it's only obvious, is also true of the Napoleonic Wars. Napoleon was, of course, an emperor and a self-consciously imperial emperor, one who proclaimed his, his, his place among the, uh, uh, the monarchs of his time. And it's entirely unsurprising that he should have fought his wars in the, in the form of battles. It would have undermined his own legitimacy to do otherwise. Now, this suggests what I want, what I argue in the book, which is that the background, the cultural background to the breakdown of battle warfare is a background in political culture. It was republics that turned out not to be able to fight contained battle wars. That's also true, beginning to be true with the American Revolution, becomes very true in the Mexican-American War, and very obviously true in the American Civil War and in the Franco-Prussian War. Now, there's a couple of paradoxes in that. The first paradox uh, from the point of view of, of uh, 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 people who do the law of war, lawyers who do the law of war, um, but of philosophers as well. Uh, the first paradox is that Immanuel Kant, who's the great founding father of the modern international law of war, was convinced that republics would never fight wars, at least against each other. Kant thought that, I think, because he belonged so much to the thought world of the 18th century I've just described. Everybody in the 18th century assumed that it was monarchs who fought wars. Kant very naturally took it for granted that once there were no more monarchies, there would be no more wars. Uh, Rousseau thought the same thing. It was a commonplace in the 18th century 
Of course, it's a commonplace that turned out to be quite false. We all know the republics fight wars. In the Mexican-American War, two republics of a kind at least fought wars against each other. Uh, and we can all see that when republics fight wars, they often degenerate into the kind of general war of devastation that we associate with modern warfare. My claim, again, it's an uncomfortable claim. I want it to make us, it makes me uneasy, and it should make others uneasy too, uh, is that the rise of modern warfare in the sense that we see it in Sherman's March to the Sea or, or in Moltke's comparable March to the Sea in France in 1878-71, my claim is that that sort of warfare emerged because monarchy collapsed as a political form and because republics came, uh, arose in their place. Now, of course, there's much more to the make of modern warfare after that, but at least the initial moment is a moment of the collapse of monarchy and the rise of a kind of republican idealism, which makes it very hard to fight the nice sort of contained, rule-bound contests that were fought in the 18th century and even in, uh, in 1866. And you make the point toward the end that the, the, the problem is that the way we define a just war uh, now turns them all practically into unlimited wars. You bet. That's the problem. It sounds like a wonderful idea to fight war, wars for high ideals, but it turns out that there's no way of ending them, as we discovered in Iraq and, and Afghanistan. Which brings me back uh, to a point that you made uh, earlier and that, that really appealed to me about the book, is this, this kind of... Um, paradoxical or, or non-obvious notion that battle is battle can be a very good thing. It can be economical, as you said, um, as a way of resolving conflict. Um, it's horrible as they may seem and, and uh, you know, as, as brutal as the reality on the battlefield might be, uh, from a kind of social perspective, it can be economical and, in fact... You bet. Um, I mean, and by its nature, battle distinguishes between militarism. combatants and non-combatants to begin with, <laughs> you know, and it, it's limited to a field, ideally. It's, it's a wonderful word, you know. That's the same as the pitch in a in a game like game of cricket or something like that. It's an old world word for a, a bounded field, a pitched battle. Well, thanks, thanks very much. I've I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed the book, enjoyed the con conversation, and 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 um, not at all put off by long disquisitions. I mean, that's what we're we're here for to to hear the authors talk about their works and convey their both their expertise. Oh, you're welcome. What a pleasure. Thank you so much for arranging certainly, it. Certainly done that. Sure, and you know, I do ask one question at the at the end of most interviews: uh, whether there's some some book maybe that you can recommend to listeners or me to to conduct an interview. Was there some some work that you encountered that was particularly helpful that you that you think is uh, kind of indispensable? Well, I mean, it's a book that I kind of it would probably be Homo Luden, Ludens by Hausinger. I don't know if military historians read it. Uh, or okay. yeah, man, the gameplay. Man, so, man, man is gambling. Uh, right? Hausinger is, is, is the, is the Dutch player. pronunciation as best as I can manage it. H-U-I-Z-I-N-G-A, the great Dutch medievalist. Uh, it's not a book that I think is, is correct, but it, it poses its question very starkly. So Hausinger thought uh, that we had to understand, we couldn't understand human history unless we recognized that there is a hardwired gaming or gambling instinct, which shows up, for example, in trials. She thinks are a form of gaming. Law, he thinks, is often a form of gaming, um, and in war as well. Uh, and it's a brilliant, fascinating, ultimately unconvincing book, I think, but extremely stimulating. Uh, uh, and it's a book that stimulated me a lot in, 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 in talking about this project. I will say I don't think that there clearly is a deep connection between war and gaming and war and gambling. And you can see this in the 18th century doctrine that a war is a form of combat wager and so on and so forth. I don't think a war is a game for a very important reason that Housing doesn't recognize, which is that games – in order that a game should be played, it's absolutely essential that the player should obey the rules at all times. 
Right? So if, if in a tennis match, one player suddenly pulls out a gun and shoots the other, it's not a tennis match any longer. Something else has happened. That's not true in war. In war, you can break the rules all the time. Uh, and to that extent, what we're seeing is not rules of a game, but rules of law. Nevertheless, the, the gaming analogy, the, through the gaming analogy, housing goes up, does a brilliant job of showing how law and war are related, how we can understand the behavior in wars related to children's games and all kinds of things like that in ways that everybody can disagree with productively. I guess I'd say I doubt any military historian will be fully convinced, but it makes for great reading and probably great class discussion if people don't use it. Right. Sometimes I think as a, as a teacher, the books that are wrong uh, can, can help you teach more effectively. Isn't it true? As long as you can communicate to the students that they're wrong. That's the tough part. <laughs> All right, well, thanks again. Thank you very much. This has been my interview with James Whitman, author of The Verdict of Battle, The Law of Victory and the Making of Modern War, which came out with Harvard University Press in 2012. Come back in about two weeks for another interview on new books in military history, or check out one of the other members of the New Book Network. They'll sometimes interview authors whose books touch on military history as well, so you might find something that you like.